All right, if you want to begin finding your way to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to work our way from verse 3 to verse 5 this morning. So whether you're turning or tapping or however you're getting there, if you'll find your way to Matthew chapter 5. Let me read the text for us and then uh, lead us again in a time of prayer. Let me start in verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Father, this morning we come to you, recognizing before us an incredibly difficult proposition, an incredibly difficult teaching. Not many of us enjoy spiritual poverty, not many of us enjoy mourning. Meekness is not praised in our community, in our homes. And so you invite us to emulate and to display characteristics that are otherwise repugnant in our culture. God, we pray for the power of your spirit to be mightily at work in this place, mightily at work in our hearts. That you would lead us into this inversion of the ordinary order of things. That we would find ourselves, we were normally aggressive, moving in passivity. We would find ourselves where we're normally boastful and prideful, moving in humility. And we would find ourselves where we're normally flippant, mourning over our sin or our breach of fellowship with you and the lackadaisical nature we bring into our close fellowship with you. Father, this morning we pray for lives to be made new. We pray for families to be restored. That your Holy Spirit might find in us a people ready and willing to be used. That it might find in us a people desirous of personal submission, ready to relinquish all, ready to follow you, come what may. Father, we pray for the other churches of our community. We're so thankful that we have so many churches to partner with, and we pray for their times of gathering this morning. We pray for their pastors, that they would be men who love you, who passionately serve you, and in so doing, that they would love their flocks well that they would shepherd them, that they would point them always to Jesus and not a brand or an identity, but always to Jesus, the suffering servant who came, who poured out his life for the salvation of many. So God, we pray for revival in those churches. We pray for revival in our own hearts and for our community, that we would be a people lovely unto your name, that we would be a people set apart and recognizable. Let me pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, let me kind of set up and restructure what we've got going on here in, in Matthew chapter 5. And so in, you get into chapter 4 in the latter part, and Jesus is traveling around, and people are coming from miles around to see this guy who's doing something that nobody else can do. And so he's traveling around. He's teaching in such a way 
that is just blowing people away. They've never heard teaching quite articulated like this. They've never uh, seen somebody who just, when he speaks, you can tell he, he gets it, he understands it, and he makes it real for them on their level. And so every time Jesus opens his mouth to teach, they're just, they're just, just completely obliterated. That their hearts, they recognize there's something unique and different about his teaching. And then he begins to heal people. And they say, man, we have never seen anything like this. And so the sick are coming from anywhere and everywhere. People from every disease and affliction are coming and seeking out Jesus. And he comes near to them and he heals them. And so they recognize teaching like they've never heard before. Power and ability like they've never seen or heard about before. And so Jesus has this massive following. And so he's out there on the plains and he comes up on the mountain. And when he does, he sits down and everybody stands and Jesus just begins to, to offer a teaching to them that is so incredibly different than likely what they expected, so incredibly different than what they had anticipated. And what we're going to do is we're going to take three weeks just to begin to unpack the first nine aspects or characteristics of that teaching. Now, it's incredibly important that as we do this, none of us get this puffed up feeling of, oh man, I, I got these. Like they shouldn't call them beatitudes, they shouldn't call them matitudes because my name is synonymous with how easily I work these into my very nature of existence and just my ordinary way of life. And you can tell I'm using a lot of words because what I'm saying is, of course, a lie. When we encounter these, we recognize that at the same time that they are required of us, that none of us have an ability to demonstrate them, to live them out in our normal coming and going. Martin Lloyd-Jones described it this way. He said, in the Beatitudes, we see something that is required of all Christians. And so if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, when you encounter the Beatitudes, if your normal temptation is to disengage your mind and say, this is for the pastors, this is for those in monasteries, this is for the spiritual elite, this is for my grandmother who, who's a shut-in and doesn't encounter people and so has no way or ability to get angry with people. If you say in your mind that this is for another class of Christian, then you miss the perspective of what he's describing. And so the Beatitudes and all this described in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are for us. They are for me. They are for you. But at the same time, we recognize that these are for us. Lloyd-Jones goes on and he says, the Beatitudes is as if we have come to a mountain. And when we are at the bottom of the mountain, we look up. And, and when we see the mountain before us, we say, I have no ability in and of myself to climb it. I have no ability in and of myself to master it. I have no ability in and of myself to make it my own. Because when we stand at the base of the Beatitudes and we look up, we are overcome. We are destroyed. He would go on and say, it's only the fool who looks at the Beatitudes and says, I think I can do this. I think I can master this. In fact, I think I already am. And so let me just tell you something. That over the last week, as I have poured over and looked at these three, there was never a temptation in my heart to look at it and say, oh, I'm getting pretty close to this. Oh, man. Oh, I'm getting pretty close to this. But the more I studied it, the more I gave myself to the pursuit of this, the further away I found myself being. Because we recognize in giving ourselves to the careful and diligent study of the Beatitudes, what we give ourselves to is a radical emptying of ourselves and a filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's the first point that Jesus comes to. Look what he says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, nine times Jesus will use this word blessed, trying to communicate to us, not a person whom the blessing of God rests upon, as if you're reading something out of Genesis 12, where in 
God said, I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing. But in a very real sense, we find this more akin to the word used in Psalm 1, where he writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you see the difference there? In Genesis 12, Abram goes out and God's blessing just rests upon him. God's just pouring, pouring out blessing on him. But in Psalm 1, we see someone who has positioned themselves underneath the word of God and is moving in line with it. So every time that Jesus uses the word blessing here, he's really describing this idea of kind of human flourishing. That when we find ourselves moving in this way, that we can demonstrate the blessing of God, this idea of this is where fullness of life is found. And that is why it's so completely contradictory. That is why for their audience and our audience, as we read these, we're just, are you kidding me? This is where the fullness of life is found? So every time we encounter the word blessed, we find ourselves not just receiving the blessing of God, but we see ourselves called to demonstrate what it is to full, to live life in full human flourishing. So let's look at the first one. He writes and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, writers really for a long time have encountered this, and the easy way to see this is to encounter kind of poverty, financial poverty. And that's really picking up on what Luke is saying in Luke 6, where he doesn't use the word spiritual. But what he's talking about in this isn't just being poor, right? It's not just not having money. It's not not being able to pay your bills but he's describing a spiritual state of mind for when we begin to apprise ourselves of kind of like, how am I doing? Where am I? We recognize how far away we are from God. We recognize our incredible brokenness. We recognize that we are incredibly empty. And there's this requirement in Christianity that we must be emptied prior to being able to be filled. And so Christianity is not this. It's not coming into this relationship and saying, oh, look, Jesus, I bring all of these attributes. I bring all of this positivity. I bring all of these assets. As if you're applying for a job where you go in and, and you write, you know, I, I can type 100 words a minute. I, I, I know the alphabet. I know the alphabet backwards. I, I can speak Mandarin, right? But in Christianity, it's coming in and recognizing all the various ways that we have liabilities. In Christianity, we bring no assets to the equation. We bring only liability. And so in this, there is no coming and there is no being blessed if you do not recognize the poverty of spirit. And we recognize in this that most of us don't like to be poor in spirit. We like to be those who impoverish others, right? You see what I'm saying? We like to be those who would go to somebody else and be like, hey, look, man, I saw you out there parking cars earlier, and good job on the one hand, but you sweat a profuse amount. (laughs) Perhaps God has not given you the spiritual uh, gift of parking cars because that is a sweat-free job out there. Or we find people and we say, look, these are the ways that I think you're failing. These are the ways that you're not living up to this. We are more ready and at home impoverishing those around us than being and recognizing the poverty in ourselves. Paul said it this way in describing his impoverished state. If you flip over to 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has just described to us that he has prayed, that he has pleaded for God to relieve, to remove something from his life. In verse 9, he said, But he said to be my grace is sufficient for you, Look at this. My power 
is made perfect in weakness. Paul responds and says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's this absolute, absolutely beautiful thing about us being just empty. Us just being these people that when we encounter Christ, when we look at God, we just say, man, there is nothing in me. There is no reason about me that your love should rest on me, that it should be found to visit me. That we are those who, who echo the words of Isaiah when Isaiah encounters God in, in chapter 6 and verse 5, and he sees God and he beholds him and he recognizes how beautiful he is, what does he say? He says, woe is me. You see, to properly encounter God, we have to recognize where we start. To properly encounter God, we have to recognize that we don't come into this and God is like, yes, I want Justin on my team because he's got a great voice and he's full of energy. We recognize that, that when we come in and we join his team, he takes us as empty vessels, and then he begins to pour himself in to us. The church at Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, they were so proud, they recognized that they had it going on. So John writes to them in the words of Jesus, and he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And can I tell you that that is the vein of what we hear in our culture. That's the vein of what we hear and what we see in our schools, in our jobs, and on television. It is not good to be in need. That's the message we hear over and again. And these Laodiceans, they got that. And so Jesus is corrective to them. He says, you, not, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, Blind and naked. It's countercultural. This idea in Christianity, this idea Sunday after Sunday, week in, week out, day in and day out. We are not a people who make excuses for our failures, but we're a people who humbly submit our failures to Him. Say, Here I am empty. Here I am with nothing to offer. Here I am, use me. Or people who have to be empty. So he goes beyond that and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now the easy initial thought on this is to look at it and say, Well, man, I've, I've been to funerals, my mom's died, my dad's died, my kids have died, and I know what it is to mourn. He's not talking about those that are sad because of physical death. He's talking in terms of this, of spiritual mourning. That moving in line with this idea of being poor in spirit, that he turns and he begins to describe it, he begins to flesh out what it is that we look at our own spiritual state before God. We look at how incredibly holy he is, and we look at how often our heart wants to pursue its own ends, its own desires, and we are broken over that. We're not a people who make excuses over that, but we're a people who are incredibly broken over this idea of just how far away we are from him. You find that, that this masquerades is this idea of kind of false piety, right? Somebody who is all about this external display of religiosity. 
And so for maybe an hour and a half each week, or maybe they're really religious, and three hours every week they come to Sunday school, they really have all of these outward displays of Christianity. So they smile every time somebody greets them. They say, oh, blessed be, glory be, brother. Hold on, where's my Baptist thesaurus? I can't use those again. And so they begin to move on and on and on in this kind of trite and old language of Christianized greeting. What does he say here? He said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those when they encounter God, moving in line with saying, woe is me. When they encounter God, they are grieved at their own personal sin. They are broken at their own personal sin. So they look at it and they recognize, man, my heart does not want to read and study his word. My heart does not want to gather with other Christians. My heart does not want these things. I, I don't long for these things. I don't desire to have these things. I don't enjoy the fellowship of other Christians. When I read the word and I encounter it, I recognize that it's so much easier just to set it aside, to, to give my tithe or whatever external thing that I can do, but never to give him my heart. But what he describes in here is a person is an individual who is incredibly broken and laid low over their own personal sin. This is what he says. So recognize there's an internal attribute to this. But in Outside of just recognizing our own need for being broken over, over our own sin, man, we have to be broken over the sin of others. And how does that work for us? How does being broken for the sin of others work for us? I would argue that for many of us, for many in our culture, that what it looks like when we recognize the sin in other people, it is anger on our part, right? This is kind of our natural movement. When we see someone else sin, and what we mean by this is they do something we don't agree with. They do something we don't agree with. And whether to be a lost person or a Christian, when they do something we don't agree with or that others would recognize as sin, we are angry with them. We are mad at them. And if we move beyond just kind of talking about them behind their back and saying, oh, what a terrible person so-and-so is. Oh, my goodness. Have you met him? Have you met her? They're just an awful wretch. And then they recognize that's too far, so they say, well, let's pray for them. Let's pray for them. When we recognize sin in others, the one who is blessed from the state of mourning is broken for them, not mad at them. It's Jesus standing over Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, how long I've desired to gather you. It's Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9.1 where he said, Oh, that my head was full of water so that I might cry streams of tears. So Psalms this in Psalm 119.36, echoing that same idea that I had tears to cry streams of water. This is what he calls us to in mourning. Think about the impact of that perspective of Christianity on our culture and community as opposed, as opposed to the Christians who come in and just pour anger Man, I don't, I don't know if you guys are on, on uh, the Facebook. If you're not, that's awesome. I feel like a moment of applause should be held for you. But I think in some sense you can see a lot about Christianity in its evaluation of the Beatitudes from how Christians respond on Facebook. Find something a lost world doesn't, does that we don't like, and we blast them. 
we post and we share articles about them to bring them low, to show them how much better we are and how much better our perspective is than theirs. You can't do this from the posture of mourning. From the posture of mourning and being broken over your own sin, you can't possibly run over there and just make somebody feel terrible about their way of life. We need to understand something. Lost people, people that don't have a relationship and faith with Jesus Christ, are going to make decisions like lost people. Christians shouldn't follow them there. You have lost friends and family that are, that are just blasting people, and, and, and maybe this person deserves to be brought or wrong down. You cannot follow them there. We cannot follow them there. We need to be a people so incredibly quick to extend grace to those we disagree with. Why? Because that may be the only grace they see. And perhaps in not offering a strong corrective word to them, they receive your gentle word and they come to you and say, when everybody else was such a jerk to me, why were you so nice to me? And therein you have an opportunity for the gospel. You say, man, I'm so broken over my own sin. I don't have the time to be angry with your sin. And so when I see the sin in your life and I see the sin in our culture, it doesn't drive me to go get a soapbox and stand up on Wesley and just yell that everybody's going to hell. But it drives me to get out on Wesley and just weep. Tears for my neighbors. Tears for my family. Tears for people I'll never meet. This is what he calls us to. This breed of Christianity that's completely transformative, that gives everything that we are to serve him. And so we recognize that we are completely set apart, that we are completely unworthy of God's love and God's forgiveness. But we recognize that even in the midst of this, in the midst of mourning, in the midst of being broken by our own sinfulness, what does it say? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. So maybe this morning you look at it and you're like, I, I got to tell you, I don't like to think about my own sinfulness because it's so incredibly overwhelming. And when I start thinking about it, it's just this, this spiral that I follow down and down and down and down and down. So instead, what I like to do is to think about positive things about myself. Well, see, the Bible offers a corrective to that. We don't find something positive in ourselves. We find something positive in him. And so what we find is that this idea of mourning, of being broken of our sin, of being convicted of our sin, it leads us to righteous pursuits. It, that's because it leads us to him. Almost in no other story in the, in the gospel accounts do we see this more beautifully demonstrated than in the account of the prodigal son. This prodigal son who effectively went to his dad and said, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance now. I, I, I care for you so little. I wish you were dead so I could have what's going to come to me when you do die. This is how little he valued his relationship with his father. So he takes it and he goes out, and many of you know this, and he squanders it. He spends it. He spends every last dime until the point where he has to take a job working for a Gentile. So he's in the midst of this, and he has this moment. He has this beautiful moment where he recognizes how broken he is over what he has done. Recognizes how broken he is over what he has done. And in verse 18 of chapter 15 in the Gospel of Luke, he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, listen to this, 
Father, I have sinned against you, and I have sinned against heaven. He recognizes how incredibly broken he is over his sin. But the answer does not lie in acts of contrition on his part. He doesn't have to stay working in that pitiable state for some period of time so that his father comes in and seeks him out and says, what are you still doing over here? Come on back. And so he rises and he goes to his father. And he tells his father, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired, hired servants, hired slaves. And so he, in his mind, has this idea that perhaps he is to be welcomed back by his father as not as a son, but as one who is slightly lower than. He says, perhaps I should just be a, a day laborer for my father. So look what happens in verse 20. It says, and he arose and came to his father. You know, this is the critical moment in the story. Many of us wonder what God would say if we came back. And you wonder this largely based upon your encounters with your family. You screw up time and time again. You're just kind of a hapless idiot. You just continue to do the same thing over and over again. What is said of the fool and of the dog returning to his vomit, you feel like is true of you in your life. That over again you do this, this same cycle. And so the son, as he's coming towards his father, his mind is moving in all the things he should say. And what happens? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced and kissed him. We need to be broken over our sin. The Bible refers to that as being convicted by our sin. But you've got to recognize this. In coming back to him, the father sees him a long ways off. And he runs to meet him. And the way the verb is put together there, the way the picture is put together there, when the father gets to the son, he wraps him up in this all-encompassing hug. And when he does that, he begins to lavish kisses upon his son over and over and over again. For the son who was once dead has now come alive again. This is what happens to us. We're broken over our sin. The enemy, Satan, would have you stay in it. He would have you wallow in it. He would have this become your identity. You're not worthy. You're unacceptable. God's love has been wasted on you. He wants nothing to do with you. And can I beg you, take a cue from the words of Jesus and the picture of the prodigal son. Don't stay in mourning. God's desire for you isn't that mourning would become your identity, but that you would come back to him and that he would pull you into his embrace and that in his embrace you would find comfort everlasting. God wants us to be empty. He wants us to be broken. And what we're going to find in verse 5 is that he wants us to be humble. Humble. As Christians, we make this incredibly difficult for people, right? Because we find somebody who has an amazing story. Somebody who was... I mean, just they were, they were a gorilla in, in Colombia, and they were shooting people, and then they left there, and they went to another 
uh, country and they were murdering people and they went to another country and they were stealing all kinds of money and drowning cats on the weekend, but we don't feel bad about that. And so then they went somewhere else where drowning cats was bad and so then they did that and they're like, oh, I'm so bad. And so we find that, I mean, because they're in South America, so they have the accent. And so we find that then they come um, somewhere else and, 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 and they're engaging in doing these things that are incredibly wrong and then they mourn, they turn, they're comforted, we hear their story, and we say, would you come and speak? Would you write a book? And we tout them, and we tout their name, and we put them on the circuit, and we travel them around, and we do everything we possibly can, can do to make it almost impossible for them to be meek. Because we miss it. We don't celebrate Jesus and what he's done in their life. We celebrate them and what they've accomplished. The same could be true for any of us. Some of us in our salvation story, it, we, we feature ourselves and our retelling of it as the hero of our story. Man, I was just kind of down in the dumps and then I realized I needed to do something about that. So I, I got out of the gutter. And I went to this place, and I chose him, and I made this decision, and I've set my life right. There's no place for that in Christianity. We're empty, we're broken, we're humble. We see this over the course of, of Christianity described over and over and over again. Speaking of the nation of Israel, God said in Deuteronomy 7, 7, I didn't choose you because you were the loveliest the largest or the most useful. But you were the fewest. That's why I chose you. When God chooses Abram and he sets his blessing upon him, we know nothing about him prior to this. And so he is a nobody from nowhere and God's blessing rests upon him and he is the father of the nation of Israel. When God comes to Moses, a murderer and a coward who ran away from a problem, so God comes to him, this guy who's empty, who offers nothing, who's broken and ran away from a situation, and God goes to him and says, I want to use you. What's Moses' response? I know a guy. He's so much better, right? Like, I'm a connector. I know a guy. You should use him. He demonstrates meekness. He demonstrates humbleness. And the prophet goes out and he's going to find the replacement to Saul and he goes out and, and all of Jesse's sons begin to file by and he's like, oh, handsome, like big muscles, it's this guy. Handsome, oh man. I mean, so this is huge men. And then David is told to be the guy. And how is he described? Ruddy, handsome, boyish. He's over there. He's caring for the sheep. He's tending for the sheep. We're told that he has a, the heart of God. He's humble. In fact, he only encounters difficulty when he moves outside humility. What about when Jesus comes to pick the disciples? Does he go to the high and mighty? Does he go to like the, the bankers? Does he go to the religious elite? Does he go to Roman guards and, and the proconsul and convert them? Man, he goes to fishermen. He goes to the illiterate. He goes to the tax collectors, those that are universally hated both by the Romans, the Jews. Everybody hates these guys. In fact, he picks one person who has any type of uh, ability in their resume. And Jesus makes every single point of Paul's resume a liability. 
He was advancing more zealously than anybody else, but Jesus makes it so that every point on Paul's resume becomes a personal liability for himself. And he uses them. He calls them me. Jesus himself, in Philippians 2, gives us this beautiful picture of what it is to be meek. He turns first to us. He says, Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Our humility doesn't masquerade and move around in this kind of this, this self-deprecation. But it's a humility, it's a meekness that finds others worthy of our praise, others and their ideas and perspectives worthy of our exaltation, worthy of our investment. So he says, look to them. And he goes on and says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul comes in and basically says this, look, Jesus is God, and he could have stepped in and said, everybody bow down and cry out to be saved. He could have done that. But he takes the opposite approach. Being full of power and full of majesty, the text tells us that he empties himself, he divests himself of all the power and privilege of being God. And it says being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The call for a Christian is not to climb the ladder of spirituality. The call for a Christian is humility. The call for a Christian is to be humbled, as we passionately pursue and follow the course that God is guiding us on. So we stand at the bottom of the mountain. We stand at the bottom of the mountain and we recognize that there are nine attributes that we have no chance of emulating, of displaying on our own. And this is what God does. He takes us empty, He takes us broken over our sin. And he takes us walking in in humility. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he begins to form and fashion these things in us. So those of us who are normally prideful, arrogant, and aggressive, he's breaking that in you. He's destroying that stronghold in your heart where you demonstrate humility. And he's taking those of us who are just so incredibly puffed up and we don't care about anyone else and and all we want to do is blast their sin and their issues and he's destroying us and our own perception of our own sin. But where he starts is people empty and in need. This is the course of our lives over the length of our spiritual journey with him. And by his power, the mountain that was unscalable in our own strength can be bested by the power of his Holy Spirit when we find ourselves empty, broken, and humble. Let me pray for us.
Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us, for the kind blessings of your Holy Spirit. God, it makes no sense to our culture, it makes no sense to many of us that we should be empty. It makes no sense to many of us, and it makes no sense to our culture that we should be broken and that we should be humble. But this is how you choose to use us. This is how you choose to move in our midst. So God, I want to pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to you. They're moving in their own strength. They're seeking and trying to be good and to do right. God, would you bring them to be empty and to the end of themselves? God, would you help them to see that they are broken, that they have sinned and transgressed against the holy God and his law? And God, in humility, would you cause them to cry out for salvation? You sent your son Jesus to die, to be the perfect sacrifice for their sin. They need not seek to atone for it on their own. And so God, I pray for the Christian in here who is struggling. They see their identity and their failure. They're reminded by it when they look at their spouse, their kids, their job, their life. God, they need to be emptied today. They need to be broken today. In mourning, they will be comforted. And in humility, they inherit life everlasting. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.